0: The Tanya of Rabbi Schneer Zalman of Liadi, taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg.
1: There's another approach, a very straightforward approach, which is applicable each and every Jew, even a Jew who finds difficulty in developing um, a spiritual love to Hashem or developing a spiritual sensitivity because the Jew is a very low level, a very coarse. And here on the contrary, the coarser you are, the easier it is for you to evoke this love. Why is that? Because... Based on human nature, human nature is at the heart is like a mirror. One heart reflects the other heart, just like the uh, water reflects a face. A mirror reflects your image. it can't help it. it's nature. So too, if, you, if someone loves you, you can't help it loving them. And if you want someone to love you, this is, a, this is great advice. You want someone to love you and they don't love you. So love them. And if you love them especially if you demonstrate that love you visibly show that love they can't help but love you in return it's a fact try it experiment and that's true with anyone who loves you your peer your equal how much more so imagine if, if Einstein suddenly showed a love to you or, or a great king a mighty king uh, there's no connection between you you're like not even in the same league and not even in the same world and yet this great person showed a love to you and loved you, and really cared about you and loved you and uh, demonstrated this love and had this intense love for you. And you can't explain it. you don't know why, why does this person love me, but he, he does. and he de- visibly demonstrates this love. and the king leaves his palace and leaves his home. With his entire entourage. And finds you where you are. You're in the dump. You're on the wrong side of the tracks. You're in the, the dunghill. You're in the gutter. And the, and this great king goes and finds you. And loves you. And demonstrates his love for you. And picks you up. And brings you back to his home. His palace. In his innermost chamber. Even his ministers are not allowed in. Servants. it's private chambers. And he brings you in. And he kisses you. And he hugs you. And he loves you. <laughs> Could you, even, could you even help with loving the king in return? can't help it if when a regular person loves you, you can't help but love him in return. When this great mighty king shows such a love to you inexplicably, you can't help but love the king in return. You don't have to work on it. It's not something you have to work on. You know, to love materialism, you don't have to work on loving materialism. It comes naturally. We love pleasant things. We love sweet things. We love... Fun things it comes naturally. You don't have to work on loving materialism. Loving money, loving it's comes naturally. But to love godliness, it's work, it's effort. The Torah says you should serve Hashem Allah, you should serve Hashem with all your heart, and the rabbi says this is referring to prayer. Prayer is called work. Because to develop a love, to love Hashem, you have to work. It's hard effort. Because it doesn't come naturally and instinctively to us. To develop a sensitivity and a a love for godliness. We should be in awe of God. We should be in love of of God. We should be attracted to godly things. We should desire godly things. We should love godly things. Let's be honest. Difficult. It takes effort. It doesn't come naturally but this love that he's describing here comes natural, and not only natural to the godly soul because our inner nature our hidden nature innately we have a godly love no, it comes naturally as a human being our coarse earthy human nature ego's nature that if someone loves us we can't help but loving them in return it's just the way it is just like the mirror can't help but reflect that face back one heart can't help but reflect the other heart, the other heart, the other love reflected right back. So if someone loves us, we can't help but love them. So when we realize that God loves us, and God is this great and mighty king, who rules over all these worlds, his infinite worlds and infinite angels and creatures and creations and consciousness, and, and, and this great and almighty God, and the whole world is completely nothing to him. And who does God love? Who does he demonstrate his love to? Who does he love with this intense love? Who does he care about? Us. Human. In this world. In this lowly world. In this coarse and earthy world. And he he leaves his palace, leaves the heavens, leaves the heaven of heavens. And where does he come? And he enters into Egypt, into the dunghill, into the... We were in the abyss, we were the wrong side of the tracks, we were all the way at the the bottom end of the spectrum 49 levels of impurity we were dirty and we were we were so far from anything godly we were addicted to idolatry and God showed and demonstrated his intense love for us and he comes in person so to speak, and comes into Egypt and lifts us up and brings us back home with him into the palace if God shows us such an intense love, we can't help. We can't help but love God in return as long as you're aware of this. If you're not aware that your friend loves you, then this loved one, you won't respond. But the moment you become aware and the moment you realize, the moment you wake up and you realize Hashem's unconditional love for us, you can't help but love Hashem in return. you just can't help it. It's natural. And on the contrary, the coarser you are, the more of a low life you are, the more distant you are from anything godly and refined and spiritual, the more, the greater the distance, and the more you can appreciate that God loves me. Despite my ugliness, and despite my spiritual ugliness, and despite my coarseness, Hashem lowered Himself down and, and lifted me up, and cares about me, and loves me. God, if you love me like that, I can't help but love you in return. So this comes natural. So we're in the middle of describing how how the whole world is insignificant Hashem. It's nothing. It's like one letter in relation to the person who's speaking the letter is completely insignificant. And the letter doesn't even exist in comparison to the person. So we're holding and all the angels ask... And then we said, All the angels asked, Where is Hashem? And they answered, kala arz Hashem's glory fills all the world. Because it says, right, as a, by way of introduction, by way of introduction to, we say in the morning prayer, Kaddish, Kaddish, Kaddish. Hashem is holy. Hashem is transcendent and he's holy. And we can't comprehend God. And he transcends the whole frame of reference of the universe. And where is he found? he's found on earth in the earthiness in this world that's where he's found he chose the Jewish people and he entered into this world so to speak and he took us out of Egypt this is in response because we say by way of introduction that the angels <coughs> means they answer with fear and they with awe And they say in fear, holy, holy, holy is Hashem. Hashem, His glory fills the world. So he says they answer. Answer means it's an answer to a question. That this is an answer, the following statement. Holy, 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 Hashem is holy. And He fills this world with His glory is an answer to a statement. They answer Be'ema with awe. What's their question? The question is, where is Hashem? Where is God's glory found? And they answer with awe. You know where God's glory is found. As transcendent as God is. And he transcends the heavens and the heaven of heavens. And we can't contain it. And he's beyond us. He's beyond our whole frame of reference. And where is he found? Where is he chosen as his home, as his place? In this physical world. And he chose the Jewish people. And he took them out of Egypt. Egypt was the most decadent, the most degenerate of all the countries. Just like every we find every human body part we find also equivalent on earth we find in the verse Ene Haaretz, the eyes of the earth the ears of the earth so too you have the Ervasa Haaretz where is the most <laughs> the, uh, that part of the earth, that's called Egypt Egypt is called Ervas Haaretz it's called the, the um, obscenity of the earth it was a country that was obsessed obsessed, addicted and obsessed with degenerate behavior that's what it says Egypt was that type of country like the United States? everyone can draw the wrong comparison but um, it was a nation that was obsessed and degenerate and corrupt and decadent it says that uh, it was a country that acknowledged um, officially acknowledged homosexual marriage, officially acknowledged lesbian marriage, officially acknowledged uh, um, one woman would marry two husbands. It was just a completely (laughs) out of of, no bounds, no boundaries, out of control, completely decadent and uh, degenerate country. And Hashem took us out of Egypt, out of this environment. And the Jews were influenced by this environment. We, We were influenced. And Hashem took us out of Egypt And they were steeped in idolatry. And he personally took us out of Egypt. Hashem tells Moshe that I see the pain of my nation. I know it's pain and it's hurt and I will go down to save the Jewish people from the hands of Egypt. Now and we find later on Hashem in person Hashem hit all the firstborn. The tenth plague came directly from Hashem. All the other plagues came through Hashem's <clears throat> emissaries, through the angels. Everything in this world comes through the angels. Everything is Hashem. An angel but Hashem works through the angels. when it came to the plague of the tenth born, Hashem did it in person. He didn't delegate it. No emissaries. Hashem did it in person. And the question is why? And there are a few reasons given. Why Hashem couldn't save the Jewish people? Why Hashem had to save? Why couldn't He send an angel? One explanation that's given is because Egypt was so corrupt and so decadent that even the angels couldn't handle it. (laughs) Even the pure spiritual angels, they just couldn't handle the environment. They couldn't even... They couldn't come down into Egypt go down into the Egyptian homes into each and every home and carry out Hashem's mission of killing every firstborn. They just couldn't, couldn't. It was too oppressive, this. It was so thick, the darkness, the spiritual darkness, the corruption was so thick that they just couldn't handle it. But this is a very difficult explanation because how about the other plagues and, and, you know, why couldn't the angel be Hashem's agent? Another explanation is given, that, because it would be very difficult for the angels to carry out this mission, because the mission was that every firstborn should die. Many times, um, and that's when the Egyptians got hysterical, and they said, we're all going to die. Get the Jews out, or else we're all going to die. Why did, they, why did they say we're all going to die? Because many times, five people died on one in one single household. Why? Because they were immoral, they were not faithful. The woman was immoral, and she had children from five different lovers without the husband's knowledge. So there <laughs> were five all firstborn. And therefore they died, and no one knew what was going on. What's, you know, we, Moses says only the firstborn is going to die. all of a sudden they discover there's a lot of firstborns, a lot of surprises. Now the angel... Couldn't differentiate because you're talking about maybe seventy, eighty years later. Who, you know, to differentiate who who comes from who and who's 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 from, who's from who? You know, it gets very confusing. You know, even an angel is a little, his knowledge is tremendous, but his knowledge is limited. So Hashem Himself had to come down. Only Hashem knows as an instant knowledge and knows everything and instantly knows who's who and what's what and who, who dies and who fits into that category and who doesn't. But these are all explanations that explain why, so to speak, Hashem had no choice but he had to, in person, carry out the tenth plague of hitting the firstborn. But al Altarebi says here, no, that's not the reason why Hashem came down. Ultimately, the reason why Hashem came down in person was because he loved the Jewish people with such an intense love, he didn't want to delegate it to him. Because he came in person to redeem the Jewish people. Because the plague of the firstborn was a unique plague. Because what happened was, simultaneously, at that very moment, when the clock struck midnight, at that very moment, two things happened. The Jewish people were redeemed, and the Egyptian firstborn died. It wasn't like at one moment the Egyptians died, and the next moment the Jewish people were reading. Not two different moments. One moment. At that very moment, when at midnight, two things happened. And Rashi explains that the primary, the Torah uses the language via varti. We discussed this on Shabbos. Via varti means I pass through. That according to Rashi, the main reason why Hashem... Revealed himself, was to redeem the Jewish firstborn. That was his primary concern. And out of his intense love for the Jewish people, he didn't want to delegate it. He says, I am going to redeem them myself. Everything else I do in this world, I do through angels. But this I'm going to do myself. Because out of his intense love for the Jewish people, he came into the dunghill, into Egypt, lifted us up from the 49 gates of impurity. At that very moment, But simultaneously, as a result of Hashem's revelation, as a result, it's almost like through the king passing through, at that moment, all the Egyptian firstborn also died. But that wasn't wasn't the primary purpose and why it had to be Hashem in person. Hashem in person was because He came, He descended into this world and revealed Himself, revealed His essence in order to redeem the Jewish people. At that very same moment, when there was this intense revelation of godliness, two things happened the Jew who had this godly spark, that godliness within the Jew emerged and surfaced and was redeemed and released and freed. It's like that fire in the flintstone. You strike the flintstone and suddenly the fire came out. The spark came out. So a Jew is a Jew is a Jew. That spark is there. Even the most idolatrous Jew, every Jew the spark is there. So at that moment when God revealed himself, the faith of the Jew, the Jewishness of the Jew, the godliness of the Jew, suddenly emerged in all its beauty and all its glory. At that very same moment, klipa, the shell, ego, was crushed. So those whose whole life was about ego, there was nothing else. And that was the beginning and the middle and the end of it, all entire life. That's what defined them. It was all about might and power. The Egyptians defined themselves by might and power. How can they they can subjugate those who are lesser than them? It was a very low, highly advanced and technically advanced, and mechanically advanced. Like the Nazis were also very highly advanced. They knew how to gas people very efficiently. But they were they were their whole definition. They defined themselves was cruelty, slavery, subjugation using other people, abusing other people. Instead of creating yourself or doing something yourself, it was all about destroying, subjugating a nation that defined itself, that had no higher definition. Everything was about brute might and brute force and brute strength and subjugation and slavery and using other people. The moment there was a revelation of Godliness, this ego was smashed, destroyed, crushed. In one split second, it was all crushed. The firstborn all died in one split second because at that revelation they couldn't handle that revelation, it was crushed. But what happens when you put gold through the furnace? When you put junk through the furnace, it destroys the junk. But when you put gold through the furnace, it strengthens the gold, it purifies the gold. It comes out pure gold. So there was one furnace, there was one revelation of godliness, a tremendous revelation of godliness. What happened as a result is the clip of the ego was crushed. But within the Jew, the ego was anesthetized, was put to sleep, put to rest. What happened when you crack through the ego? That spark came out. The matzah came out. When the chametz couldn't rise, the ego, the chametz that represents the ego, was anesthetized and silence, all of a sudden, the faith leaped out. That innocence, that purity that was buried and submerged within the Jew, that faith... Emerge in all its purity and all its glory, and that was the primary purpose of Hashem re- revealing Himself in person. He came out of His love, unconditional love for the Jew, and He came to redeem His, his chosen people. And he came to redeem them and to release them, and therefore he re- he, we had this intense revelation that never existed before since the creation of the world. Such an intense revelation, a miraculous revelation, and such a global a global scope that Hashem basically humble the world's mighty superpower which was completely hopelessly corrupt and decadent and and Hashem destroyed destroyed its might and destroyed its power and destroyed that arrogance and that ego but the purpose, but that was almost incidental like he passed through Egypt but the purpose was to redeem his children to redeem the Jewish people so Hashem shows such a love for us such an intense love for us in order to bring us close to Him. And that's what we left off in the bottom of page 687.
0: In order to
2: bring them near to Him in true closeness and unity, the real attachment of soul, so that the Jew's soul will be truly bound up with the Almighty. This is also so regarding the Torah, concerning which Hashem says I have written and given my soul to the Jewish people. By giving them the Torah. Thus, not only is the Jew's soul truly bound up with Hashem, but Hashem's soul too is united with the Jew. saying
1: even a Jew who is very selfish and doesn't care about anything godly. So what connection do I have to, to Judaism? What connection do I have to godliness? I just love myself, I love to indulge, I love to enjoy life, I love to... Mm. What connection do I have to anything spiritual? I'm just not into it. So you have to remember who was the Torah given to. The Torah was not given to angels. The Torah was given to the Jewish people at their lowest point, when they reached their nadir it says had the Jewish people remained in Egypt another moment they would have been lost forever they would have reached the 50th gate of impurity had Hashem redeemed them at midnight one moment after midnight it would have been too late so Hashem out of his unconditional love for the Jew jumped in and saved the Jew at the last moment before it was too late so who did Hashem demonstrate his love to? who did he give his Torah to? not the angels the angels on the contrary, when the Jew reached the deepest levels of impurity, of darkness, and there Hashem lifted him up and gave him the Torah. So when the Jew realizes how much Hashem loves us, even in our sorry state of being, spiritually backward state of being, so no matter how backwards we are spiritually, no matter how gross and coarse and selfish and self-centered and self-absorbed and we are insensitive to anything spiritual or godly or holy, We can't help but love Hashem. How can we not love Hashem in return? As we are in our state of lowliness. Lowliness. Because of our state of lowliness. Look how much Hashem loves us. How can we help but reciprocate Hashem's love for us? So this is a straight path for every one of us to develop. A natural, a fiery, a passionate love for Hashem. And for His Torah. And for His mitzvah. And we won't let anything get in the way. We won't let anything stop us. Nothing could stop us from pursuing Torah and mitzvot. because returning Hashem's love for us, when we realize how much Hashem cares for us, when you realize that someone cares, cares for you, you can't help it but be moved. Maybe it's difficult for us to relate to it because very few people, maybe not very few people care for us. But if you meet someone who really cares for you, really loves you and cares for you, you're moved, you can't help it. Someone said yesterday, a beautiful story. My son-in-law mentioned that there was a Jew who was very sad and very depressed, and he decided he reached the end of his rope, you know, the end of his life. He couldn't handle the pressure, and he felt lousy about himself and lousy about life, and he decided to take his life. Bring an end to his misery. Why go through 120 years of this misery? someone convinces him before he makes his decision he should go visit Levavitcher Rebbe so he goes visits the Rebbe and he he pours out his heart he tells the Rebbe I have this miserable life and I just can't take it anymore I'm in such pain and it's just not worth it I don't don't have the energy I have no morale left so I decided that I'm going to jump off the bridge that's it I'm going to commit suicide no point And the never started crying. he couldn't calm himself down. He's crying, crying. After a few minutes, they were crying. He couldn't he couldn't take it. He left the room. And he decided you know, no one ever cared cared about me like that. There's a rabbi in Brooklyn, I don't even know. I just met him for the first time. And I'm telling him that I wanna I want you know, I want to say goodbye and I can't take it. And he's crying. <laughs> it bothers him. Someone who cares about me so much, I never had that in my life. Obviously, if he would, felt that, he would never want to commit suicide. He never had any love in his life. He never had anyone that cared about it. But when he saw this genuineness, you know, you can't cry. It's not Hollywood. This is, he saw the Rebbe was genuinely crying and upset. It bothered him so much that, you know, that he says, you know, I, I, someone loves me so much, someone cares about me that much. He said, how can I... How can I uh, you know, end my life? If someone cared about you, you can't help but care about them in return, love them in return. If someone really cared about you, if you've been lucky enough to feel that and experience that in your life, where someone really cares about you, you can't help but, but love that person with every fiber of your being, every bone in your body. You just can't help it. So when you realize how much Hashem cares about us, how much Hashem loves us, and He cares about us, every one of us. And not only He loves us because we're so great, and noble, and spiritual, and elevated, and angelic, and heavenly, and no. Where did He find us? In Egypt. In the lowest of the low. In our Nadir, we reached our most decadent point, our most backwards point, the darkest moment. And there Hashem loved us, and He cared about us, and dear a person came and schlepped us out of Egypt and gave us His Torah, brought us into His innermost chambers, and He hugs us and He kisses us. If Hashem cares about us so much, we can't help but care about Hashem, and care about His Torah, and care about His mitzvah. Even if you have a heart of stone, even if you don't care about anything spiritual, you're so coarse and selfish and self-centered and self-absorbed, you can't help it. If you're alive, and you're human, and you're aware the heart is a mirror. you can't help but love Hashem in return. With all your heart and passion. And reciprocate by learning His Torah, doing His mitzvah, not letting anything get in the way of you fulfilling His Torah.
2: On the level of kisses of mouth to mouth, so that the Jews' mouth be united with the mouth and speech of Hashem, by uttering the word of Hashem, namely the halacha. When a Jew speaks and studies the words of, of the Torah, in his, his speech is united with supernal speech in a manner of kisses, of mouth to mouth. And this unity, however, is external in compassion with the deeper and more inward union of spirit and spirit, as explained in the previous chapter. This deeper level of unity is also attained through Torah study. And the fusion of spirit of of man with spirit of Hashem, namely the comprehension of the Torah and the knowledge of His will and wisdom.
1: So when you kiss, when you kiss in love, when you kiss, there's two aspects. There's the physical aspects, a lip touching a lip. But there's the deeper aspect. It's the spirit touching the spirit. The lip touching a lip is an expression of what you're feeling inside. And it's the spirit touching the spirit. You want to get closer to the other person. And you love the other person. You want to become one. It's an expression of that inner spirit. So too. When a Jew studies Torah, you have these two aspects. You You say the words of Torah like we're doing right now. We're saying the words of Torah, our lips. But there's also the inner aspect. Our mind is fully engaged understanding what we're learning going deeply into what we're learning understanding So our soul, our spirit is touching the soul and the spirit of Hashem so it's a physical connection, it's a kiss it's the words, but it's not just the words it's also our soul is touching and becoming intimate with the soul of Hashem by understanding the reason behind the law and understanding the reason behind the Torah and understanding what we're learning that's the mitzvah of studying Torah. The mitzvah of studying Torah is not just to say the words. It's to really understand what you're learning. Engage your mind and understand on your level. Really go deeply into it and really, truly understand it. So then, it's an intimacy of spirit and spirit, which is also expressed by the kiss, the physical kiss, by physically saying the words of, of Torah.
0: When Torah is studied with comprehension, the person knows both God's will and wisdom, knowing the halacha, the law that determines that an object is, say, either kosher or non-kosher, constitutes the knowledge of God's will. While comprehending the reason for the halacha relates to God's wisdom, which are truly one. God's will and wisdom are truly one with Him. Hence, through Torah study, Jews become united with God in the manner of union of spirit and spirit.
1: That's the nature of the mind. When you understand something, it becomes one with you, inseparable with you. It becomes like your blood. When you digest food, it becomes part of your bloodstream. It becomes part of you, inseparable from you. So too, when you digest, when you learn Torah, and you chew on the Torah, and then you digest and absorb the Torah, then it becomes one with you. So you become one with Hashem. A concept in Torah, an idea of Torah. Torah is God. God and His will and God and His wisdom are one. So when you digest, absorb, concept in the Torah, you become inseparable and unified with God Himself. You've digested God, you've become unified, intimate with God. That's like the kiss. And then, I'll continue, also.
0: Also, with a form of embrace, for Torah and mitzvot also affect the unity of an embrace, similar to a person embracing his friend with his body and arms namely the fulfillment of the positive precepts with the 248 organs which the human being possesses. Performance of the 248 positive commandments brings about a state of embrace, wherein God's 248 organs embrace
1: man's. Why does man have 248 organs? Because there are 248 mitzvahs. There's a mitzvah for each and every every organ. Because the mitzvot are the organs of God, so to speak. They are God's body, so to speak. For the
0: 248 ordinances are the 248 organs of the king, as mentioned earlier in chapter 23. Each organ of the body is an appropriate vessel for the particular faculty of the soul that resides therein, such as the eye for the faculty of sight, the ear for the faculty of hearing, and so on. So, too, each mitzvah is an appropriate vessel for the specific emanation of the divine will that desires the Jew to perform the particular commandment. In a general manner, these 248 positive mitzvot are divided into three categories, right, left, and center, namely, chesed, or kindness, din, or stern justice, and rachamim, mercy, these are the mitzvot which are in the category of the right side, Chesed. Others in the category of the left side, Din. Still others in the category of the center, Rachamim.
1: So you have certain mitzvot that are expression of kindness, giving tzedakah. You have certain mitzvot that are expression of givura, like elevating, like give, giving, tithing. Um, elevating yourself towards Hashem. There are mitzvot that are to bring Hashem's awareness into your life. And then you have mitzvot which are in the category of the center, of rachamim, of mercy. These
0: are the the two arms in the body. Chesed is the right arm, gevura or din is the left, and rachamim represents the body, the center. Just as when a person embraces another... He does so with both arms and his body, so too do the two arms and body of the mitzvot embrace the Jew who performs them.
1: So, when Hashem is embracing us through the mitzvot, it's Hashem's sense of touch, so to speak. Hashem is embracing us fully, totally. Just like when you embrace someone, you embrace their whole being, even their back, you embrace every part of them. And the person who's embracing is embracing them with his two hands and and his body. It's totally embracing encircling the other person. So this is also a form of love, of intimacy, when you embrace someone. So Hashem is kissing us, and it's a shearing also of spirit and spirit, the innermost spirit. That's inner, inner intimacy, which is, represents the studying of Torah. And then you have, through the doing of the mitzvot, by doing all of the mitzvot, we have the right hand and the left hand and the body, all of the mitzvot, Hashem is fully embracing us. So we are completely intimate with Hashem through Torah and mitzvot.
0: This is the meaning of the text of various blessings pronounced before one <coughs> fulfills in mitzvah. Blessed be he who has bestowed us by his commandments. The Hebrew word generally rendered who has sanctified us is here rendered who but bestow us from the Hebrew word kibushi, to from mizrot to our like a man who bestow his toes a wife so that she be united with him in a perfect bond as it is written that he show cleave to his wife and they shall be
1: one flesh We usually translate, Hashem sanctified us with the mitzvah. But he's saying, Kiddushon also comes from the word Kiddushin. It's a marriage. Because a Jew is married to God. We're intimate with God. A mitzvah is not just a commandment. But a mitzvah is where a Jew is married to God. And by doing the mitzvah, we are being intimate with God. Just like in a marriage. A marriage is the deepest attraction. The most profound, the most powerful attraction. In Judaism, sexuality is the holiest. It's called holy. Most cultures don't associate the women and holiness. But in Judaism, marriage is holy. The bedroom is the holy of holies. This attraction between men and women husband and wife, is holy. It's very powerful. It's profound. It's the deepest and the holiest. and touches our very core and essence. And it touches every fiber of our being, every bone in our body. 100%. Absolutely. total, Intimate. So to us, marriage is the ideal. Marriage is not a necessary evil, a compromise to human nature, and the ideal is to be a monk, a nun, a Buddha, that's not the Jewish ideal. As a matter of fact, the high priest, the holiest Jew, is not allowed to enter on the holiest day of the year into the holy on the Yom Kippur, into the holiest spot in the holy of holies, unless they're married. He's a half a person. Unless he's married. Because marriage is modeled on the marriage of the Jewish people and God that's why in the Torah God is always referred to as He not because the Torah was written by men but because it's a marriage Mount Sinai was a marriage it's not just about rules and laws God gave us a constitution God gave us a legal document Torah is a marriage it's a relationship between the Jew and God and a relationship it's two half of souls it's it's, it's a mutual attraction so when Hashem is attracted to us we can't help but be attracted to Hashem It's the most natural thing in the world, the most profound, the deepest, and the most natural. So when Hashem is attracted to us, and Hashem, we can't help but be attracted to Hashem, and reciprocate. And when we're attracted to Hashem, we are, and become intimate with Hashem, we become intimate with every fiber of our being, every bone in our body. So it involves kissing, it involves hugging, and we become completely intimate. And like he's going to say, it's much more than physical intimacy. We only use that as an analogy. An incomplete and inadequate analogy, because physical intimacy is the closest that we can get to the concept of becoming intimate, where two people become as one. But the truth is, when a Jew becomes one with God, when we become intimate with God, it's much deeper. It's a much deeper intimacy. It's much, we become completely unified with God. Absolutely unified with God. Through Torah and we become completely one. We, we jump over that gap that divides us and separates us. Through Torah and we overcome that gap and we become one. And we attract attracted to each other and we kiss each other and hug each other and we become completely intimate and one. That's what happens when a Jew studies Torah, and doesn't it? And that's also what happens when a Jew prays. Balshamtav says, why does a Jew shake when he prays? So the code of Jewish law is brought down because the soul is compared to a candle and the candle flickers, the candle moves. A candle shakes. Because a candle jumps, The candle wants the yearns to go up. You have to force the candle down. So the soul yearns for godliness. You have to force it down so the candle is moving. That's the nature of a Jew. By the way, it's uniquely Jewish. You walk into any house of prayer everyone stiff, silent, lost the meditation. You walk into the Eastern ashram, everyone is quiet. You walk into Ashul, <laughs> stop shaking. I mean it's so unnatural. We take it for granted. But you look around anywhere in any society, as a matter of fact, they they speculate that the pashtuns in afghanistan have some interesting uh, maybe they're from the ten lost tribes they have a lot of interesting uh, history and laws that are, resemble the torah and one of the proofs that they bring is if you go into their uh, madrasas they call it you see the little kids are shaking away <laughs> just like Jews you don't find it anywhere in the world you know we take it for granted but it's so unique so that's the one explanation, Baal Shem said, another explanation. The reason why a Jew shakes in Davening. Because he says, when a Jew prays, we're being intimate with Hashem. Just like intimacy. You shake, you're moving. You're so alive, you're so intimate that, that it, every fiber of your being, every bone of your body, as King David says, I'm singing your praise with every bone of my body, with every fiber of my being, because I'm being intimate with Hashem. It's a marriage, it's a relationship. This is not just meditation and spirituality. It's a total marriage, a total relationship, and there's no part of me that's left out of this relationship. It's not just cerebral, mental, meditational, spiritual, love, philosophy, religion, mysticism. This is marriage. Marriage is 100%, it's total, it's absolute, it's physical. Conscious, subconscious, emotional, psychological. Every part of me is completely 100% focused and concentrated. At that moment, a Jew is intimate with God. And that's why we physically shake. Or we pray. Or we study Torah. So this is Asher Kiddushano. Every time we do a mitzvah, we say Kiddushano, This is a marriage, a relationship. And that's why we're motivated to do the mitzvah. What's the motivation of the mitzvah? the reward of the mitzvah is the mitzvah itself. Fra as it says in the ethics of our fathers, Schar mitzvah, mitzvah. What's a mitzvah commandment? What's the root of the word mitzvah? It's a connection, it's a link. Every time I'm doing a mitzvah, I'm hugging, God is hugging me, I'm being intimate with God. It's a link. It's a connection. I'm strengthening my marriage. I'm strengthening my relationship. What's the motivation for me? Do I need any ulterior motive? That is the greatest motivation. When I'm attracted to my spouse and I love my spouse and I'm intimate with my spouse, that is the motivation. That is the end. It's not a means to an end. I'm doing the mitzvah in order to get a share in the world to come. You know, To do the mitzvah for ulterior motive Someone gave a very simple analogy. He says, imagine if a doctor was working on the biggest breakthrough in medicine, the cure for cancer. And he he achieved the greatest breakthrough. Found found a five-cent cure for cancer. Now, could you imagine if his motivation would be, you know, now that I found this breakthrough, first I'm going to earn a few billion dollars have the patent for this. Secondly, I'm going to get the Nobel Prize. He earned it. He will get the Nobel Prize. He will get the recognition. He'll probably become the most famous doctor in history. But is that his motivation? Is that what motivates him? He's a doctor. What motivates him? The satisfaction that I can cure millions of people from a miserable disease. That's the satisfaction. Everything else is fringe benefit. That's not what it's about. His motivation is, it's pure. It's, 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 I don't need any ulterior motive. The motivation is that I, can, I have this breakthrough and I'm able to bring healing. I'm a doctor. I'm, I'm not a businessman, an entrepreneur. That's not what it's about. It's not about the money or the power or the fame. It's about the idea that I can bring healing to so many people and alleviate the suffering of so many people. So too, when a Jew does mitzvot, because when you do a mitzvah, you're going to get a share in the world to come. And when you do a mitzvah, you're going to get health, and you're going to get livelihood, and God will reward you. That's all true. And you deserve it and earned it. But is that what it's all about? Is that, how impoverished could we be? The reward of the mitzvah is the fact that I'm intimate with God. What do I, any, everything else is fringe benefit. That God loves me and is attracted to me and I can't help but be attracted to God in return and every time I do a mitzvah I'm being intimate with God and expressing my love for God and it's a link, it's a connection, it's strengthening my link. That is the greatest reward I put on the tefillin, the fact that I'm putting on the tefillin and I'm connected with God. I light the Shabbat candles at that moment, I'm connected with God. That is the reward. Do I need a greater reward? Like the act of intimacy, that is an end in itself not just a means to an end. Otherwise Judaism is so impoverished superficial. rewarders. Who's thinking about rewards? Who cares about rewards? That's that what motivates me? Is that what excites me? Is that what this is all about? What it's all about is kiddushanu. It's a kiddushin. It's a marriage. a relationship. And I'm intimate with Hashem. And that's the most rewarding thing. I don't need anything else. That is what it's all about. Being one with Hashem. That is it. That's an end in itself. I'm happy right now and here. Not the world to come. What world to come? The world to come, I can't do any mitzvah. Where can I be intimate with God? Not in the heavens, not in the heavens of heavens. You know where I could be intimate with God? In this world, when I have the mezuzah and I have the tefillin, and I'm studying Torah, and I'm a human being, and a soul, and a body, in this physical world, only here I could be intimate with God. Why would I give this up for the world to come? The world to come has nothing on this world. The world to come is is absolutely nothing in comparison to the mitzvah. This shifts our whole focus. This changes our whole whole perception. Like that story with the chassid who worked on his nature and his personality and his character and he really worked very hard on himself and he spiritualized himself and sensitized himself and meditated and fasted and And uh, focused, and he worked very hard in himself. He wouldn't go to bed at night, he wouldn't sleep in a bed, he would fall asleep studying every night, and he really worked very hard in himself. But the poor fellow, the poor Chasur, worked himself to death. You know, he didn't eat properly, He he didn't take care of himself. And he was dying on his deathbed, a young man, his 40s, surrounded by his friends. And um, obviously it was the last moment of his life. It was uh, late at night, after midnight. And he turns to his friends he says, you know, I would give up my 30 years of fasting and working myself just to be able to live till sunrise. A little before sunrise that I can put on tefillin one, one last time. And he passed away before he had the opportunity to put on tefillin. He passed away during the night. His colleagues said, you know, he's right. He's 100% right. One time putting on film is worth more than 30 years of spirituality and meditation. And, but it took 30 years of <laughs> spirituality and meditation for him to realize the importance of doing a mitzvah. So the more refined, or the, more, the more you realize what it's all about, that the opportunity that we have in this world The preciousness of this world. It's only in this world. Where is God found? Not in heaven. In this physical world. With us, here. In the physical, in the lowly, in the material, in the mitzvah. When we do a mitzvah, we have the opportunity to become intimate with God. When I'm one with God, why do I need anything else? It's a step down. It's not a step up. This is it. This is what it's all about. That's my motivation no ulterior motives am I thinking about the world to come? Who cares about the world to come? That's not what it's about. The reward of the mitzvah is the mitzvah itself the fact that I'm connected with God. Vice versa. What's the punishment for sin? Lightning is going to strike. No. The sin itself is the worst punishment. I have this intimate relationship with God. God loves me and He cares about me. So visibly, so obviously. He demonstrates His love for us. And, and I just went ahead nonchalantly, I have this marriage this relationship, and I went ahead and did something to ruin this marriage, to destroy it, to, to do something like I don't care about this relationship, that is the worst punishment. <laughs> do I need any worse punishment than that? And does it matter if it's a great mitzvah, so it's a small mitzvah, if it's a minor mitzvah, if it's a major mitzvah? Oh, I only keep the big mitzvah, the important mitzvah. The small things, I have no time for the small things. Like in marriage, oh, well, the big things I take care of. On a wedding anniversary, I'll take you out. The small things on a daily basis, help out in the house, take out the garbage, be nice, uh, you know, kiss you good morning, say a kind thing every day. No, these things, I haven't. You know, only the big things. That's not a matter. In a marriage, it doesn't matter big, small. Anything I can do to strengthen the relationship is buying a flower, a small thing, a very small thing taking out the garbage the smallest thing anything I can do to strengthen the relationship that's my motivation anything that I can do that will harm this relationship diminish the relationship doesn't matter big or small why would I do it if I have something so precious and so special and, and I have this powerful attraction and have this powerful love this mutual reciprocal love why, why would I do anything to harm to sever to cross this, this, this boundary to cross this relationship it makes no sense that is the worst punishment. I, the sin itself, the act of the sin, I don't need any worse punishment. That is the worst punishment. So this shifts our whole understanding, our whole relation of what Judaism is about, what mitzvahs are all about. It's a marriage, kiddushonu. Every time we do a mitzvah, we're intimate with God. Which is also why why a Jew finds the exile so intolerable and so unbearable. Why a Jew has such a sense of urgency that we need Mashiach now. For us, the thought that Mashiach is not going to come until tomorrow morning. Right now it's 8.10 p.m. Tuesday, 8.10 p.m. For us, the concept that God forbid Mashiach is going to show up tomorrow morning is unbearable. Why? Because Kiddush comes from the word Kiddushin. A Jewish marriage is made up of two parts. Jewish marriage is unique. You don't find this in any other marriage. Not before the giving of the Torah, and today, not amongst anyone. The whole idea of a Jewish marriage is made up of two parts. The first part is called the Kiddushin, when the chasen, when the groom gives the bride the ring, and it's called the betrothal. In the olden days, the first part of the marriage, the betrothal, and the second part of the marriage, where they actually moved in and lived together, was separated. It was like a year apart. First, he betrothed her, and for all practical purposes, they become full-fledged husband and wife, but they're not, they're not allowed to live together. They don't live together yet. But if, God forbid, they're unfaithful, it's committing adultery, because they're, they're married, but they don't live in together. And then a year later, they would move in together. That's called the Chubb. Two different parts of marriage. So it says that Mount Sinai is the first part of marriage. Kiddush, the betrothal. Mashiach will come. That will be when God consummates the marriage. When God moves in with us and lives with us. So Mount, since Mount Sinai, 3,320, almost 22 years later, God has not yet consummated this marriage for a Jew who learns the 46th chapter of Tanakh, and obviously learned the 40, first 45 chapters of Tanakh, who understands what this relationship with Godliness, what this is all about. Every time you do a mitzvah, you're expressing your love for God. Every time you're studying Torah, you're expressing your desire to be intimate with God. Every time you do an act of kindness, It's because God is kind with us. God loves every one of us, so we in turn have to love everyone in return. We're praying, we're talking to God. Everything that we're doing is an expression of our love for God. So for us to have the status quo where we only have the first part of marriage, even though we're considered husband or wife, but not to consummate the marriage, for us, it's unbearable. As King Solomon says, King Solomon writes in the Song of Songs, God, please kiss me. So As she says, this refers to when Mashiach will come. Mashiach will come and says, God will kiss us. He'll reveal the secrets of the Torah. When all the hidden secrets will come out. When godliness will be revealed. Right now, godliness is not revealed. We do the mitzvah, and we know that we're doing something godly, and something godly is happening. It's a link, it's a connection. Something real is happening. It's not a ritual and a custom. We're experiencing something. But it's hidden. It's not revealed. It's in a vessel. 248 limbs, 248... Every vessel contains its energy. The eye contains the soul's ability to see. It's contained. The godliness is contained. When Mashiach will come, godliness will pour out. It will be overt. You walk down the streets... And you'll sense godliness. Godliness will become palpable and tangible. It will not be contained. It will no longer be contained. Godliness will overflow. It will be obvious to the naked eye. That hasn't happened yet. All we have now is the betrothal. Godliness is contained in a limited way. Mashiach will come, will be unlimited. God will become truly intimate. Consummate the marriage. And godliness will be completely no more... Well, the world will no longer be opaque. Instead, the world will become transparent. God is become completely transparent. So for a Jew, the status quo, where we only have the first level of the marriage, the Kiddushin, and not the second level, is unbearable. Here we're spending, every one of us, every Jew around the world, every day and all day, is spending and dedicated to our marriage, our love, and our relationship with God. And we're expressing our love to God every time we do a mitzvah, every time you put on tefillin, you're saying it again, I'm married to you, Hashem, and I'm expressing my love to you. You love me and I love you and I can't help but love you in return, because like the heart to the heart, it's an attraction, the most powerful attraction in the world, husband and wife, I can't help it. the most natural thing in the world the deepest the most profound the most genuine it's beautiful the marriage between husband and wife is the most beautiful thing in the world it's the holiest thing in the world sexuality intimacy is the holiest thing is the most beautiful thing in the world and that's why because it's so holy it has to be done in the right context no premarital no extramarital and husband and wife not two men and not two women It has to be done in the proper way because it's so holy and it's so precious and it's so deep and profound and so special. So here we are, every day of our life, expressing our love for God. So the thought that we're only betrothed and we haven't consummated the marriage—it's intolerable. It's unbearable. It's too painful. 3,322 years God hasn't consummated the marriage for a Jew there's such a sense of urgency you know you can't go you can't be an observant Jew and go about your life studying Torah doing mitzvot giving tzedakah leading a good life and not thinking about Mashiach it's so unnatural What do you mean? Do do you understand what this is all about? Do you understand what a mitzvah is all about? It's kiddush It's the betrothal. We want to be intimate with God. Do you understand what studying Torah is all about? You're studying the Talmud because it's so brilliant and it's mind-boggling and it's so interesting. Because when you're studying Torah, you're becoming intimate with God. You're studying God's will and God's wisdom. And the deeper you go into the Torah, the more you comprehend the Torah and you understand the Torah profoundly and in, in, a, in a very profound way, the more intimate you are with God. So everything that you're doing and giving tzedakah and doing the right thing is all about because you want to get close to God. So how can that bother you? How doesn't it get into your kishkes? And your gut it doesn't bother you that Mashiach isn't here. You you can make peace with the status quo where godliness remains contained and hidden and God hasn't consummated his marriage yet. It's so unnatural. If you love someone, if you have a spouse, would you be separated for 3,322 years and consider, oh, what's the problem? We live for thousands of years without Mashiach. God forbid, we can go on for another thousand years so he won't come, he hasn't come before yesterday, why should he come tomorrow why should he come, what's the rush there's, some, there's a disconnect only someone who's thinking about the world to come ulterior motives, who's clueless what Torah is all about, what mitzvah is all about could even talk like that do you understand what this is about this is a live relationship it's a live wire, it's dynamic it's vibrant, it's alive it's reciprocal, God loves us unconditionally and we reciprocate in this powerful attraction and, and, and it doesn't bother you that there's this separation so for a Jew who's in touch with the soul of Torah who's in touch with what's really going on the fact that God forbid Mashiach won't come till tomorrow morning is unnatural I need Mashiach now Because here I am spending all day and every day expressing my love for God. Every time I do the right thing and I, I bend myself and I bend my nature and it's difficult to do the right thing. I'm only doing it because for Hashem. So all day and every day I'm expressing my love for Hashem. We want Hashem to express His love for us in the most revealed way. He should consummate His marriage. And if Jews really felt this way, and really felt this urgency, that we need Mashiach now, and it bothered us, genuinely bothered us, it pained us, we were in agony, how can I dedicate my whole life to Hashem, and everything I'm doing is godly, and, and Mashiach hasn't come yet. Then surely Mashiach will be here this moment, now. Not a moment later, but now.
2: You referred to the, the world, the world of Mashiach, the world in which um, godliness will be obvious. So then how much more remarkable or marvelous or wonderful is it that in this world there are Jews who can uh, reach intimacy with God when God is not revealed? Isn't it more tremendously remarkable that in a world where everything is revealed, it's very easy to understand God is there and what's right and what's wrong and what Mitzvot means. But in the world prior to that time, it's just a remarkable thing.
1: Very good. Actually, I refer you back to chapter 36. (laughs) It's actually today, what we do today in this environment, when godliness is not concealed, that actually brings Mashiach. It's precisely that dedication and that self-sacrifice and that, it takes so much out of us, that personal dedication to Hashem, which you see precisely when godliness is hidden and concealed, that's what brings Mashiach. That's what brings the revelation of Mashiach. So it's through our actions, especially in this setting, in this environment. But the ultimate goal is when actually Mashiach will come. Because when we consummate that marriage, that's the more natural state, and that's when that's when life begins. Not like Mashiach comes on life is over. When you get married, life begins. You have a whole married life ahead of you. But it is this stage that actually brings down, uh, creates Mashiach. So Mashiach is an activistic program. We bring Mashiach today. Every time we do a mitzvah, especially in this time of concealment and darkness and difficulty and challenge, and in this in this environment. Every, every time we do a mitzvah, the dedication is so pure and the devotion is so that it moves Hashem. It moves Hashem in the deepest level, and that's what's going to bring mashiach. That's what's going to trigger mashiach. That's what's going to trigger that revelation, that intense revelation. But, but a Jew has that yearning and that longing. You know, we are here and we know what our divine mission is, and we're fulfilling our divine mission. We're doing the mitzvahs. We are faithful. We are loyal. But that longing and that uh, yearning, we long and yearn for, for for the redemption. A Jew longs and yearns for the redemption. Even though we know that we are on a divine mission and there is a divine purpose to where we're at and, and, and Hashem created, Hashem put us in this situation. It's not like we chose. But on the other hand, we have this, this profound longing and yearning and desire. And... Um, and that's also part of it that will also bring Mashiach because Mashiach you need that longing and yearning if we don't long for Mashiach and we don't yearn for Mashiach if we're content and we're satisfied can't come (laughs) he's waiting for that that hunger you know Mashiach is an answer to a need if you have no question (laughs) if you have a burning need and a burning question and if you have that question Hashem get me out of exile then, then can come the answer you have no question, you have no need, we are content and satisfied. Um, because ultimately, ultimately, Hashem is not limited. Why did Hashem have to create the world that way? Hashem created the world that way. Hashem created the world in such a way that the only way to get to Mashiach is we have to go through this difficulty and this challenge and this tremendous darkness. But Hashem is not limited who says, Hashem created the world. So why, why does it have to be that way? Hashem created the world that so we can get to, to Mashiach in a pleasant way. Why do we have to get to Mashiach in such a convoluted and such a difficult way? Hashem is not limited. He can't straightjacket it. So ultimately we turn to Hashem and say, Hashem, listen. <laughs> you know, bring us to Mashiach. In a... So we have to long and yearn for Mashiach. And when you long and yearn for Mashiach, genuinely long and yearn for Mashiach, only then can Mashiach come. So that's also part of it. It's us doing the Torah, doing the mitzvot, even in this time of darkness, which is an amazing thing. As the Shepol HaZeda once said, he cried to Hashem, if I didn't see with my own eyes a Jew in, in shtetl in Eastern Europe, a Jew was subjugated, and pogroms, and the poverty, and the difficulties. If I didn't see with my own eyes, and being in an exile for 1700 years, if I didn't see with my own eyes a Jew doing mitzvot, I would never believe it's even possible so that's an impressive thing so many Jews are doing Torah and Mitzvah despite the darkness, despite the challenge despite the coarseness and the the crassness, that's an amazing thing, and that triggers Mashiach but it's also the longing and the yearning Hashem wants a Jew to genuinely cry out, if you're in love with Hashem, and you're attracted to Hashem, and you have this, this with every fiber of your being, you have to long and yearn and cry to Hashem, Hashem I can't take another moment of exile, I need Mashiach now, and if it's genuine That will trigger Mashiach.
0: This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com